of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Welcome to episode 81 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here with the second installment in a short but sweet series on the subject of political polarization. And I'll start this episode off with a question because that's not annoying as hell or anything. How many of you have found it increasingly difficult to speak with someone of a different political opinion than yours in recent years? Now, I'll start this off with the second question, because the first question wasn't quite enough. How many of you have found it increasingly difficult because most of the people around you are increasingly like you? Our next guest, Bob Talese, professor of philosophy with a specialization in politics at Vanderbilt University, has observed and documented the way politics has become such an integral part of our identity that we're actually less likely to live near, shop around, and otherwise associate with people who think differently than us. Why, you might ask? Oddly enough, it seems to come down to nefariously targeted branding. I'd explain more, but Bob does it way better, so you're going to have to listen. Also, a disclaimer, I forgot to turn my fancy podcasting mic on prior to recording this episode, so I use the mic on my laptop, and I sound like I'm speaking from the bottom of a well. Other than that, fascinating episode. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Welcome, everyone, to You Don't Have to Yell, the webcast and podcast focused around electoral reform and generally making politics less yelly. Um, now, normally on this show, I do a lot of talking and with my guests about ways we can reform our electoral system to reduce divisiveness, reduce polarization, and have a government that actually governs. Uh, the guest sitting before you today actually has some practical knowledge as to what we can do about it now without any changes. Uh, so I wanted to bring him on here, talk a little bit about his work and, uh, and, and help us all understand ways we can help lower the temperature in our own personal interactions. So with that, I'd like to introduce Professor Bob Talese of Vanderbilt University. Thanks for joining me, Bob. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. And I guess one note uh, too that I probably should have warned you about, Bob, is on this webcast, I have a 100% record of my camera running out of batteries midway through and then me having to switch vantage points. Uh, so you may see me have to sit down and look at the, look at the uh, laptop here. So that's for you. That's also for the audience who has seen this weird shift in perspective in every episode I've done so far. So all good. Uh, consider yourself warned. Um, so I guess to kick things off, like, you know, like I said, I, when I first found you, I found you, uh, I found you via the Ted talk you did on, um, again, having conversations around politics, or in some cases, not having conversations around politics and not letting it interfere with our relationships. And, you know, just really dug into 
uh, a lot of the stuff you've written. And I think one of the things I found really interesting and, and something that I wanted to really start the episode with was this concept that the foundation of democracy is ultimately the idea that people who disagree or people who have differences are have to be regarded as political equals and have to regard the other as political equals. And could you elaborate on that concept? Because I found that just really interesting. Sure. So, you know, this is one of those um, philosophical ideas that um, to uh, people in my business, <laughs> political philosophy, <laughs> you know, is just sort of ground level, you know, obvious stuff. But it turns out that it's um, a feature of uh, you know, modern democracy that um, as citizens, we often lose sight of. Now, here's one way to think of it. So, um, you know, democracy is a kind of um, anti-hierarchy ideal when it comes to politics, right? So democracy is, you know, our democracy is founded on the principle that there's something fundamentally illegitimate about uh, a monarchy, right? Uh, and in fact, you know, the declaration asserts you know, not only the uh, permissibility of revolution, but the obligation to revolt, right, against this kind of uh, unresponsive, uh, um, non-accountable uh, site of political power. So democracy has its root in the idea that hierarchical forms of government uh, and forms of politics more broadly, from monarchy and aristocracy to oligarchy, are fundamentally flawed at the moral level. You know, they might be efficient, they might be um, uh, good at creating social stability, they might be, but there's something morally inappropriate and lacking in um, any form of politics that is based on the idea that from the point of view of our social uh, uh, um, arrangements, mm -hmm. You know, some are other. Some people are other people's subordinates. So, democracy has built into it a kind of equality. Now, we yeah. tend to think of that equality more typically, strictly in its vertical sense. Mm -hmm. That is, we think that in a democratic society, the government is required to treat us as equals. It can't discriminate against us. It can't recognize titles of nobility. It can't uh, establish yeah. a case system, so on and so forth. Um, so 14th Amendment stuff, we sort of tend to think that we are entitled to equal status and equal treatment under the law. So that's one way in which the equality that's baked into democracy um, sort of shows up in our ordinary thinking of these things. Mm -hmm. but. Equality also has a horizontal, <laughs> not merely a vertical, but yeah. a horizontal dimension where part of what we are morally committed to in modern democracy is the idea that citizens are one another's equals. They are equal sharers in political power. They are equal wielders. They are equal participants. They are equally responsible for or the kind of politics that emerges from their activities as members of a self-governing community. So that's what I mean by we say like democracy is rooted in the ideal of political equality. Not only must the government 
with its policies not discriminate or show partiality uh, uh, against us in our role as you know citizen, right? Yeah. But citizens are one another's equals. They are sharers in the common project of creating a decent, relatively just and stable social order in the absence of bosses and rulers and kings and noblemen, right? Mm-hmm. That's the, the, the sort of morally dignifying, seems to me, morally dignifying uh, a vision that modern democracy is rooted in. And uh, the founding documents you know, of the United States, uh, you know, the, from the Declaration, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, the Federalist Papers, all these things, you know, you see these really um, inspiring assertions of that, that I'm nobody's subordinate is the sort of the core of citizenship. Now, of course, those moral commitments of democracy have a very troubled, complicated uh, 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 history in our country uh, that uh, I'd say we have yet to fully confront. But the aspiration is, um, the aspiration of democracy laid out in our constitution and other documents is that a democracy, a modern democracy, a democratic republic is a self-governing community of political equals. And that's got both the horizontal, both the, the vertical and the horizontal dimension uh, to it. How's that? That's absolutely fantastic. And I think it's something, it's something that like not a lot of us think about either. Um, and it's funny too, because as you were talking, you know, one of the things I, I've, I've thought a lot when I look at how people talk about politics is, is very often, it seems like what they're looking for is a one party state. Like it seems like what they're looking for or what their definition of democracy working is, is their opinion extrapolated across all of government. And, and I think that is the, 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 I I think, I think that's probably the most damaging or one of the most damaging aspects of polarization in 2020. Um, The other thing I wanted to, to, to discuss just to level set for the rest of this conversation is that even though that's the state of polarization today, polarization isn't entirely bad. It's, it's right. necessary or it's a necessary aspect of democracy, right? Yeah. So, you know, here's the nice segue from the talk about political equality. Mm-hmm. One, of the, um, one of the byproducts, and it might be more than merely a byproduct, I mean, one of the, one of the what, what's at the core of political equality in this horizontal sense, you and I are one another's equals. So when we're equals, politically speaking, we get to make up our own minds about political things, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm your equal, you don't get to browbeat me. You don't get to lecture me. You don't get to dictate to me the things that I must think. Um, We we can try to persuade each other for sure. We can disagree. We can try to correct one another's errors as we see them. Sure. But political disagreement that sometimes runs deep and gets heated and involves animosity and resentment. This is not eradicable from the democratic package. This is part of what democracy is. And if you, you know, want to put in a, maybe an overly optimistic sense, you might say, wait a minute, sort of heated, sometimes severe political disagreement is in a weird way a signal of our health as a democratic society. If I didn't see you as my equal, 
Why would I bother trying to convince you of anything? What, what, why would what you think matter to me, right? The fact that what you think matters to me is a sort of a, 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 a roundabout way of my recognizing that you are an equal sharer in political power. And because you are my equal, what you think matters and what you think matters to me, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's not hard in popular discourse, even among, you know, otherwise pretty sophisticated political commentators and pundits. And it's also not uncommon within the you know, professional democratic theory to um, run across the attitude that um, hostile political disagreement is some kind of pathology that democracy needs to solve, that we need to, you know, um, uh, create institutions and public spaces where whatever disagreements we have, they're going to be gentlemanly. <laughs> you know, sometimes the word civility gets used in this way that nobody gets too exercised over yeah. politics. Yeah. Now, it just seems to me that, you know, well, that's, I don't even think that that's pie in the sky thinking and we're always going to disagree. I don't think that that's fully in line with the democratic ideal. The democratic ideal is not an ideal where we say, well, we're all equal here, so let's not get heated. Yeah. No, the democratic ideal is that despite all the ways in which I think you're wrong and I see your political views as corrupt, and I even think that you are on the side of unacceptable from the moral point of view of policies, democracy is the demand that I recognize in light of all of that. You're still my equal, which means despite all the ways in which I think you're failing, <laughs> you don't merely get an equal say, you're entitled to one. Now, mm -hmm. that's a tall moral demand. That's a heavy demand to put on citizens. The people who you see as your political foes must also be regarded by you as your political equals and therefore entitled in the moral sense of that term to an equal say, and it's not hard to see how those things, you know, that's, that's conflicted, right? You feel conflicted, right? Justice, getting the right answers about policy in a democracy is really, really important. That's why we're so exercised. That's why we take to the streets. That's why we fight. That's why we fret over Thanksgiving dinner with our, you know, politically backwards uncle, you know? Yeah. Uh, but that's the right, that's what democratic citizenship is. It's caring really, really deeply about how the political order gets structured by way of our participation as, a uh, as individuals in a community of self-governing equals. But it also requires that we maintain that attitude required by the horizontal kind of equality. You're, I, you know, my, my uncle has got all the wrong political views. And if he gets his way, the country will fall further away from being properly just. But that doesn't impugn. Right. That doesn't that impugns his ideas. Maybe he's that doesn't make him my subordinate. That doesn't make him a mere obstacle to be overcome. He's still an equal gets an equal say we vote the way that we vote. We we uh, we participate the way we see fit. But um, the fundamental anti-democratic thought is uh, that my political opponents are merely obstacles to be surmounted in the process. Uh, you, rather than, despite all the ways in which I think they're wrong, misguided, irredeemable, corrupt, they're nonetheless equal sharers in this common thing that um, 
uh, uh, that we all uh, uh, have to recognize uh, uh, one another's equality uh, 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 in the in the course of, of of doing it. That's not right. Yeah, it's. I- I mean, you're, you're making me feel better about all those interminably long political arguments I see on Facebook now because I'm actually like, hey, they care. They're actually caring. So I, I'm going to, so, so for the folks watching here, again, next time you see a couple people debating about impeachment or about border policy or whatever, that's a good thing. You, you don't have to get involved. A little it's, bit. It's a good thing and a little, it's a little bit of a good thing. I always say, this is what I, this is what I've, the conclusion I've come to is like polarization is like cholesterol. There's a certain amount of it that's necessary for the body politic to function. And then there's a certain amount of it that just sends the body politic into cardiac arrest. Right. It, and, and it's funny because like, you know, one of the stories that you brought up in, in one of the articles I read was a story about your dad and the neighbor across the street. And now I, I, I won't, spoil the story for everyone. I'll let you tell it. But your dad was this was a diehard Republican. Neighbor across the street was a Union Democrat, right? Yep. And first off, your dad hated Carter, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which I find hysterical because I grew up in a very Republican household. And they didn't hate Carter. I mean, they 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 didn't think he was a great president. But he's like a hard guy to hate. So your dad is like another another level compared to what I grew up with, but, you know, but they, they were, they were really good friends, right? Yeah. So, you know, let's, um, it might be helpful uh, to sort of just make a distinction mm-hmm. between what very broadly, yeah. I, I promise not to get into the philosophical weeds on this. Hey, let's get in the weeds, just, whatever you want to do. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. well, you know, when I say something that looks like it's weed worthy, let me know. <laughs> I'm happy to say more. You but, it. you know, we can talk about, you know, two different meanings or senses of the term polarization. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important to keep these two that are all about to distinguish distinct mm-hmm. because it helps us track the kind of good, bad cholesterol distinction that, yes. that or analogy that you just drew, which health, I think is, 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 is incredibly, incredibly helpful. Yeah. So, you know, we can think about polarization uh, as, well, we might think of it as sort of the doctrinal ideological distance between two political groups like parties or organizations or identities. Uh, so, you know, we can think in terms of liberals and conservatives or Republicans and Democrats. And they're polarized in the sense I'm now speaking of in to the extent that they're ideologically so distant Mm -hmm. that the middle, the common ground sort of drops out between them, Mm -hmm. which means that of course, there's no basis for cooperation or compromise. Any attempt to try to meet the other halfway will be seen by your allies as a kind of capitulation and betrayal. Right. So When the middle ground drops out, there's sort of a lot of log jams and frustration and resentment um, that accompanies that sort of just government isn't getting done because people can't, you know, people are divided by this, you know, they're they're on opposite sides of the aisle and the aisle just got really, really wide, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Call that political polarization. Now, to a certain degree, Political polarization is, I think, often like the good cholesterol. When you say, well, wait a minute, 
we're talking about political parties. It's good for them to, you know, be different. Yeah. Citizens need to think that there's a choice to be made. That, you know, you pull one lever rather than the other or check one box rather than the other box, there's going to be just different things are going to happen for the next four years or two years or six years or whatever. So it looks as if having distinct political parties that have identifiably different policy and governing agendas is actually sort of healthy for democracy. You know, it's like, well, that just means it's not one party. Uh, and if it's one party, it's not really democracy. So a certain degree of political polarization, I think, is inevitable and is healthy. Now, let's think for a second before I draw the other kind of polarization. This, this is a little bit of the weeds talk now, but yeah. there are different ways of, of measuring or understanding what we mean when I said the aisle just got really wide or that the ideological distance between the two parties has expanded. Well, what are we measuring? <laughs> what does that mean? <clears throat> Just want to lay out really quickly three different ways of understanding what's being talked about okay. when you talk about ideological distance or the, 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 the parties sort of separating. Well, what are they separating? What does that mean? One way to think about political polarization is to look at the party platforms and to say, well, the Republicans and Democrats are extremely polarized when their platforms have no intersects. They don't share any legislative policy or principled items on their platform agendas. Mm -hmm. Another way is to look at the composition of the party leaders, the candidates, the, uh, um, uh, the, the, the majority and minority leaders and the representatives, right? And just to see, well, uh, how ideologically aligned are the two parties at that level, the, 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 the candidates, the representatives, the office holders, the party leaders? How much do they agree with one another? Because that's going to be also a different kind of metric of the extent to which they can't agree with one with, with the other side, mm -hmm. right? So party, um, party homogeneity is one other metric of political polarization. Now, there's a third, and this will get me to uh, what you were mentioning about my father. Yeah. There's another way of measuring political polarization, the ideological distance between, let's just say, Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives. And that has to do with sort of taking the temperature of the ordinary affiliate. Mm -hmm. So now we're not talking about party leaders mm -hmm. and office holders. We're talking about citizens. And we're figuring out different ways to measure how much animosity they feel towards affiliates of the other party. Now, here's a, a really mind-blowing, when I first started looking into the data on this, mind-blowing uh, uh, fact about the United States over the past 40 or more years. Um, when it comes to, forget about the parties and the party, you know, the documents and the officials and all that. Let's just think again about the ordinary citizen. Inter-party hostility and animosity has gone through the roof since the 1980s. We now, rank and file affiliates of the parties, dislike, distrust, are disgusted by rank and file affiliates of the other party in a way that is super intense and more intense than we've ever seen it since we've been tracking this kind of thing, again, since the 70s and 80s. 
That intensification of cross-partisan animosity has not been accompanied by a corresponding commensurate intensification in actual policy disagreements. Liberal and conservative citizens, in fact, disagree no more severely over what government should be doing than they did in the 70s and 80s. They disagree. Yeah. Some of those disagreements are hostile. They're not any more hostile, and the disagreements aren't any more severe today than they were in the 1980s, despite the fact that today we hate the other people more. We hate the other side. We hate our neighbors who vote, vote for the guy that we didn't vote for more intensely. So there's kind of a puzzle now, right? Political polarization understood as this sort of negative affect or negative feeling towards the other side mm -hmm. has gone through the roof mm -hmm. in a way that's not commensurate or doesn't reflect any deep-seated political differences over policies. In fact, when it comes to certain kinds of what we might think of you know, back, you know, 20 years ago, we talked about, the, you know, the, the culture war and thing and things like that. We talk about those issues, you know, stem cell research, same sex marriage, abortion, uh, euthanasia. These things were, you know, single issue voters used to be single issue voters about liberals and liberals and conservatives have actually come closer together. Conservatives have become more liberal in their attitudes about all of these things, mm. despite the fact that. So we've actually we've, we've got less to fight over but are more hostile towards the other side. Now, that's why, where my dad comes in. Yeah. Now, you know, this, I'm talking now about the 1980s, right? <laughs> my, my, my childhood, as it were. Um, you know, my, my, my dad was a kind of Reagan Republican kind of guy, sort of a Republican generally kind of guy, um, did not like President Carter, mm -hmm. um, and was not, you know, was not shy about that. <laughs> it wasn't like he hit that fact that he didn't like President Carter um, and the neighbor across the street, as you say, sort of like a union Democrat guy. Uh, he was a mechanic. Um, uh, my dad was an accountant. He was a mechanic. You know, that guy didn't hide the fact that he was, you know, a kind of union Democrat in, you know, New Jersey. You know, this is, you know, and that he supported Carter and was a liberal and the rest. They didn't hide this from each other. It just wasn't part of their neighborly relation. Mm. Not because they suppressed it or like adopted like a, 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 a norm of just, well, let's just not talk about that. They didn't often talk about it, not because they were trying to, they were holding each other, you know, holding back, mm -hmm. but just because they had other things that, you know, they shared in common that weren't manifestations as they saw it, of their political ideology or identity. Now, that's interesting. That's the kind of thing that almost never happens today. Yeah. That is that today, and one of the ways in which we explain this intensification of cross-partisan animosity, despite a similar or commensurate uh, uh, um, uh, uh, um, deepening of divides over policy, is that um, one of the things that's happened in the past 20 years, particularly, uh, maybe 30 years, since Bill Clinton, uh, uh, largely, um, is that more and more of what we do 
in our day-to-day lives has become encoded, Mm -hmm. saturated with our partisan identities, such that more and more of what we do is understood by us and by those around us as signaling our political values, our partisan identities, our partisanship. So in the United States today, um, where you buy your groceries, mm-hmm. believe it or not, is highly, highly predictive of how you vote. The guy in Whole Foods uh-huh. is incredibly likely to be liberal and to vote liberal. The person, you know, down here, and I'm originally from New Jersey. I had to learn what Kroger was when I moved here. Yeah. yeah. The, guy, the guy shopping at Kroger, heavily. Heavily likely to be conservative. And by the way, that's across the country. You can find that kind of divide between supermarket chains and politics. Here's another one. And again, these are surprising until you until what you did what you just seem like. You're like when you think about it, you're like, oh yeah. So the next one, uh, Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. Where do you buy your coffee? And now, now look, the, of course, everyone's like, oh yeah, the Starbucks is the liberal coffee shop. Dunkin' Donuts is the conservative coffee shop. Now, just think about it, by the way, except for in Massachusetts. Well, yeah, it's like a religion <laughs> because, here. Yeah, so that's yeah, yeah, because Dunkin' Donuts is a, you know, in fact, you, you don't see these partisan divides, for example, in McDonald's versus Burger King. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because this, the brands have been along way before this saturation of partisanship overtook the country. You do see divides in fast food between, for example, Chipotle. Uh-huh. <laughs> right uh chipotle and um uh chick-fil-a for example yep um so look at us the inside of a starbucks starbucks is selling coffee to people who enjoy the momentary illusion of being in a foreign country right uh-huh. there are photographs yeah, there are maps right you know you can see like a big map of africa you know, yeah. to show you where the beans are coming from or the Middle East, right? And um, you order your coffee uh, at Starbucks and, you know, you have to pronounce words that sound like they might be a foreign language. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? So it's a, it's, it's, it's a way of marketing coffee to people who've got a certain conception of themselves as cosmopolitan, as comfortable with multiculturalism, um, as uh, um, uh, uh, happy to mm-hmm. speak words that aren't English words, or aren't words in the English language. Um, now, we know also in the United States, you know, having a, pa- if you have a passport, the chances that you vote liberal are really, really high, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have a passport, right? If you drive to vacation, likely, it's very likely you're a conservative. If you vacation someplace that requires you to get on a plane, it's likely that you're liberal. And those differences are robust across economic differences. That is, people who are similarly economically placed so that they can both equally easily enjoy taking a, uh, afford taking a flight somewhere, yeah. The conservatives don't get on the planes. The liberals get on the planes for vacation, even if they're economically similarly situated. Yeah. Um, now, think about Dunkin' Donuts now, outside of Massachusetts, right? Uh-huh. America runs on Dunkin'. The slogan tells you it's not Starbucks. Yeah. 
It's about getting people to work so that they're alert, so that they can do their job and that they can serve America by way of doing that. The word America is in the slogan. You won't see, you will never see the word America on the inside of a Starbucks. We are going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with Bob Talese. I hope you're enjoying this episode and I want to take a short break to remind you why we're here and how you can help. Now, just this week, Gallup released two polls, one showing 62% of Americans feel a third major party is needed and another showing 50% of Americans now identify as independents, more than either party. And in other words, the two-party duopoly ain't cutting it and we need change. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know how strongly I feel we need true multipartisan democracy. And ranked choice voting is by far the easiest way to start giving minor parties a voice in government. If you know this is important and you want to take action, as I know you do, go to rankthevote.us an organization dedicated to building out the ranked choice voting movement in every state in the union. Go to the site, sign up, and you'll receive updates about ways you can take part in your home state. Remember, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to the one who is striking at the root, and you don't get closer to the root than the ballot box. I hope you'll join me. And now, back to the episode. There's a couple things I'm, I'm thinking about here, which is number one, um, regardless of your opinion of Donald Trump, love him, hate him. I don't believe there are people who have no feeling about Donald Trump, but maybe they're there. Um, beyond all else, he was a master brander. He yeah. was a brand and he knew how to brand. And the thing I always say is, you know, if you want to tell me, or if I ask somebody, what was the slogan of the 2020 Republican campaign is make America great again, or maybe keep America great. Right. Yeah. He, he gets, he, he gets it. And the other thing I, I, we've been talking a lot, uh, 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 talking about a lot on this show is the way political parties through data have gotten so adept at yeah. micro targeting people, um, not just by voter rolls, which was the traditional method they used to use, but they look at, newspaper subscriptions and all sorts of demographic data that paint a picture of how you're likely to vote. And I guess the the question I'll I'll pose to you is, does this ability to brand, does this ability to micro target and to really say, okay, these are the people who we can get and this is how we're going to get them. Does, is that a contributing factor? Like, does that do anything to, 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 to sort of calcify yeah. that polarity. Absolutely. So let me let me take a step back yeah. and now just say the, 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 the let me so we talked about political polarization and then this idea that partisanship has saturated mm-hmm. aspects of our lives where it just it, it, it hadn't in, inhabited before. Yeah. Now here's the other sense of polarization where I think that this is exactly why I think it's obviously correct that the micro-targeting and the treating of politics as branding Mm -hmm. is so effective because there's this this other sense of polarization that is 
at least from the point of view of me, you know, I'm a philosopher, I'm interested in, in weird things. Um, this is the, uh, the, the less familiar sense of the word, but I think it's all the more intriguing. So political polar polarization, remember, is the ideological distance between politically opposed groups. Mm -hmm. There's this other sense of polarization, sometimes called group polarization, but I'm going to call it belief polarization just because okay. both are about groups. You know? <laughs> okay. So just to mark the distinction, belief polarization is a cognitive phenomenon that we, all of us, without significant variation across age, education, ethnicity, gender identification, religious belief, geography even, we're all vulnerable to this to a significant degree. Mm -hmm. And it's the, you know, it's the, it's, it's, it's the more scientific, uh, uh, um, uh, highfalutin sort of version of what we think of as the yes man phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? You surround yourself with like-minded, uh, with like-minded people. And in the course of interacting with those like-minded people about the stuff that makes you like-minded, <laughs> every party to those interactions transforms into a more extreme version of themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, what that means is that um, liberals become more stridently liberal, more confident in their liberal views, more ready to um, uh, assess non-liberal views as idiotic, ignorant, morally corrupt, uh, the same goes for uh, the, the, the conservatives. You get conservatives interacting. Uh, if they're, for example, uh, you know, Second Amendment types, they become more radically invested in the Second Amendment, more, more likely to recognize fewer kinds of constraints on gun ownership that would be consistent with the Second Amendment, and more inclined to see anybody who deviates from their particular commitment about the Second Amendment as wanting to take guns away, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. not only as we become more extreme versions, more confident, more strident versions of ourselves, we also come to adopt increasingly negative attitudes and assessments of the people who are not like us. That is, as, as belief polarization takes hold of us and our allies, we become more extreme we become more like our allies, right? We become more uniform as allies yeah. and we become more dismissive, disrespectful uh, uh, and um, uh, 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 derogating of uh, people who aren't like us. And we come to see the people who aren't like us as radical, extreme, monolithic, close-minded, unreachable people. So mm -hmm. you see this, by the way, in real time, right? You know. The gun control example is, is only one, right? That um, once belief polarization takes place with a gun, with, 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 with a second amendment, uh, 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 you know, advocate, mm -hmm. you know, any little suggestion that you're like, well, you know, should people really be able to own this kind of weapon? That's automatically not only perceived, not only interpreted, but actually heard as you want to take my, my, my hunting rifle away. Right. Yeah. Think about oh, the yeah. same way. Let me just give one other example about, yeah. the, about the border wall. Yeah. You saw this unfold with, you know, when the border wall was was a thing that people were debating. I mean, it seems it seems a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. Right. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But there you say, well, well wait a minute. Um, you know, uh, 
for those who were supporters of the, 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 the project, the Trump project of building the border wall, there's somebody to say, well, wait a minute, like, this is an incredible expenditure. How are they going to secure the land? Don't we care about property rights? You know, I mean, somebody yeah. just giving like reasons why this might not be such a good way to spend the money or a good way to understand what the government's role is in thinking about border security, whatever it is. To say that to a supporter of the border wall was instantly to be heard as being opposed to borders as such, to wanting to welcome and to give presence to criminals and drug dealers and human traffickers. That is, as we believe polarized with our allies, we become incapable of hearing nuance in the other side's views. We hear the other side as a monolithic extreme, right? We attribute to our opponents only the most extreme, which is often the most implausible mm -hmm. version of the opposing side. You see this every night, by the way, on television, if you watch oh. cable news, yeah. this is how this works. Now, in some cases, it's strategic. This is a way of, you know, propagandizing, you know, your, 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 your audience base. In other cases, though, it's strategic because it plays on a cognitive vulnerability that we are all, that, that we all are affected by. You know, we surround ourselves with like-minded others. We just become more extreme versions of ourselves. Now, all of that is to say, here's the, here's the connection then with the other parts. Yeah. All of that is to say that as we become more extreme, we become more dismissive of the other side, more and more of what we do becomes in our own minds tethered to and expressive of who we are and who we are becomes more and more a matter of the politics that we hold, such that in the country now, liberal, liberal and conservative are not names strictly for political beliefs about what government should be doing or what the priorities should be for your legislative bodies. Liberal and conservative now in this country name distinct lifestyles mm -hmm. that run the gamut from, like we were saying before, your consumer habits, the television shows you watch, where you live in your particular state or you know, in New York City, you can track where the conservatives live. Mm -hmm. It's a heavily liberal city. There are districts where he's like, okay, there's this number of, there's this percentage of people who are conservative living in this city. Where do they live? They live close to one another, <laughs> right? Uh, they're not living in the East Village, by the way. Um, so where you live, where you vacation, just one other thing, the number of maps in your home positively correlates with how yes. liberal you are. I'm so glad you said that. Continue. Please. Please. <laughs> the number of clocks in your home positively correlates with being conservative. Yeah. And these are ways not only of organizing the world around us so that we feel affirmed in who we are and we become more and more committed to the idea that fundamentally who I am is a liberal or I, who I am is a conservative. That is that our political identity becomes more so central to our understandings of ourselves socially. Not only do we make the world so that it, it, it feels welcoming to us because it's affirming who we understand ourselves to be. It also is signaling to others who we are. It's inviting certain kinds of interactions. It's discouraging others. 
And what that means is that here's the, the big upshot. I know this is <laughs> no, please. Here's the big upshot. Um, you know, you might be familiar. I suspect a, a lot of the people listening to me right now are familiar with this concern about echo chambers and silos on in online and social media spaces. Yep. Those are legitimate concerns because of this belief polarization phenomenon. It's really easy to extremify people, to turn them into radicals when you're able to control and contour and curate the kinds of information they are exposed to. That's a critique of 24-7 news channels and the ways you know, Facebook algorithms work and all that. All of that is perfectly well-placed and a, a, a real important um, uh, uh, real important warning about how our democracy is conducting itself. Because remember, part of the phenomenon here is as we expose ourselves to belief polarization, we become less able to see those who are different from us as our equals. They start looking to us like bad weather, uh, uh, tsunamis, corrupt, right? Okay. Yeah. Now, if you think that that rough kind of familiar critique about social media spaces is, is sound, as I do, it's not only like our physical spaces are coded in almost the, exactly the same ways. The yeah. person standing behind you online at Starbucks, yeah. the casual encounter you have with the person at Whole Foods, that's a person just like you. Those encounters are going to uh, affirm your sense of who you are. And because politics is now central to our sense of who we are, the world around us, the social world that we constructed for us in our everyday goings about in the world, functions like an echo chamber. So we are increasingly exposed to belief polarization, increasingly exposed to forces that homogenize us, make us more extreme. Last point. Yeah. Just to get back to the, uh, the micro-targeting thing. I, I, I just, to, just to pause, I'm, you, you're taking me into it, like, like you're taking me on a journey into the political matrix, I feel, because I'm, at any rate, go, go, go on, please. Here's just the point. Good, good, good. Here's the point about micro-targeting. Yeah. Like, think about that. Like, when we are a heavily belief-polarized population, uh -huh. the car, do you, drive a, do you drive a hybrid or do you drive a pickup? It mm -hmm. If I know that, I could probably tell you how you voted for the past several elections, by the way, right? Yeah. Like, oh, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. Like, okay, do you own camouflage attire? Do you have yoga gear? Right. I mean, I, you know, I, do you own a fishing pole? If you give me the answers to these questions, I can pretty <laughs> much tell you how you voted. But think about it. Yeah. Think about what a boon that is to marketers. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I can sell you the truck by showing you a picture of a guy in a flannel shirt driving it. Because you're going to feel affirmed by the flannel shirt, not the, not the yoga gear. I'm going to sell the hybrid car by showing you a picture of the yoga the person in yoga gear yeah. using it. Because you're going to affiliate with that. You're going to feel affirmed by that image. So just from the point of view, just sort of marketing, like first week of marketing 101, yeah. if the persons, if the, if the population has relatively predictable profiles of preferences and lifestyle choices and values, it's very easy to market to them. When 
that profile of lifestyle choices and uh, uh, and habits and values and dispositions is tightly centered around political partisan identity. This is a benefit to political parties, to managers uh, uh, and orchestrators of campaigns. They do the same thing that the person selling you the car does. They don't talk about policy. They ex they accentuate their disgust with the other side because that's a way of affirming who you are is hating the other people because that's part of who you are. By the way, now in this country, in the United States, we've got some new polling on this that shows negative partisanship, disgust and distrust of the other side is what motivates most of the voting that occurred in the 2020 election and also in the previous election, right? It's not, a, not about, and you could, of course you're like, yeah, of course that's true, right? <laughs> no, but once you see that, it's all about our emotions. It's all about our investment in our lifestyles and our, and, our, and our preferences. And that just means it incentivizes the politicians and the campaign managers and the parties to accentuate the differences, to valorize intransigence, to talk about the, you know, the, to demonize the people on the other side, all the while our democratic capacities to see in our political opposition, our you know, people who, fellow citizens who are our equals, that all gets eroded. So we've got the two kinds of polarization working together amidst this sort of saturation of politics into every cranny and nook of our lives. And the problem is that it just, it dissolves our democratic capacities, which are fundamentally the capacities we need, mm -hmm. whatever they may be, to yeah. recognize in our political opponents, our people who are our fellow citizens, therefore entitled to an equal set. How was that? That was a long answer. Wow. No, but I think it's, look, I think it's worth saying, and there's one thing before I move on to the next question, which I'm going to break into two parts. I want to just state something for the folks watching and state something for the folks listening, which is if you have any doubt on the ability for a, a well-funded enterprise, be that a business or a political party, to use data to target you, um, there is, there's a story and I, I wish I could remember the book so I could credit it, but there's a story I read about this dad who goes, you know, goes to the, um, goes to get his mail and there's baby formula sent from target to his daughter, right? So his daughter gets baby formula and he's a little, you know, perplexed and whatever. So he just disregards it. Next day goes back, she gets a sample of diapers. And she's like, all right, what's going on here, right? So he complains to Target about it and says, my daughter's 15. Like, why are you sending her baby stuff? And they apologize. They said, you know, we'll take her off our list, whatever. Turns out, like a few weeks later, the daughter tells the dad that she's pregnant. And Target's ability to look at this girl's buying patterns see how they deviated and determine she was pregnant was that precise, it was so precise that they knew it before the dad did. And so I, I say that as a way to say that is the level of precision that organizations can have. And so- Yeah, and Target well, might've known it before the daughter knew it. Probably, yeah, right? <laughs> Right? right? She's you buying know, a lot of twists. Like, what's going on? Yeah, that's right. Buying <laughs> clothes that are a little bit big. She thinks she's just gaining weight, maybe. Like, well, no, well, hold on a second. With the Twizzlers. So, yeah, you're exactly right. And insofar as 
belief polarization makes us more uniform in our profiles, in our lifestyles, just makes us all the more susceptible, all the more easy to read in these ways. And, you know, national campaigns are not doing anything different from mm -hmm. what Target and Facebook are doing in, in turning the world around us into an advertisement, ultimately an adver advertisement for ourselves. Yes. <laughs> wow. So I could totally go down this rabbit hole, but there's, there's another thing I want to talk to you about here, which is cool. I, I had told you before we hit record that I, I live in the town I grew up in. So I was born and raised here, dead of Massachusetts, as I call on this podcast, the birthplace of modern democracy, because we do have the oldest town meeting. And um, That's cool. yeah, so, you know, we got to have a claim to fame. And, uh, and so at any rate, um, Dedham, when I was growing up, was very mixed socioeconomically, very homogenous racially, as was most of Austin um, at the time. Uh, but it was a situation where you had doctors, lawyers, carpenters, roofers, you know, all people from all walks of life, um, all living in the same community, all going to the same town meeting, all congregating at the same places, similar to your dad and his neighbor, you had the conservative accountant and the, and the liberal union Democrat living across the street from each other happily. Um, now, what I've noticed is as time has gone on, this town remains, I think, the only uh, affordable enclave that borders the city of Boston. And I, can, I actually can't even say that anymore. Now it is completely unaffordable to, uh, the, to the average person. And so typically, you know, when if somebody wants to live here, chances are they are more affluent than they were than, than the average person who I grew up with was. And I see this playing out in cities across the country where the cities and the towns closest to them have become uh, have become only available to those who make the most money. And you have a lot of people being pushed out into the periphery. And there's almost this uh, economic homogenization going on by virtue of market forces. And do you feel like, does this play a role in it too? Does the fact that we are probably more stratified or, or more, I, I guess our communities are more homogenous from an income level. Do you feel like that is, is a factor in this as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, so firstly, let me just say one sort of, uh, a broad political philosophy thing we could pursue if you want, you know, yeah. economic inequality in this country is just, you know, that's also, <laughs> you know, yeah. in addition to all this interesting political philosophy slash psychology stuff, economic inequality and the ways that it has expanded and grown and the, sh the, the contours it's taken, particularly mm -hmm. in the past 40 years are just, you know, detrimental to, to any semblance of democratic life. Mm -hmm. So I'm on board with all that. Now, here's the thing. The economic homogenization of particular enclaves within particular locations, particular districts, particular states is part of um, a broader homogenization, again, of lifestyle, consumer choices, values, the way you understand what family is and how what, what, what child rearing is alike and all the rest. But what's interesting about this is the more affluent people moving into your city, 
now are more alike people who are economically similarly situated in Oregon mm -hmm. than they are <laughs> to people who are economically similarly situated who have a different political valence from them yes. in Massachusetts, right? So you say like people who are economically similarly situated, even if they're geographically close, if they are politically different, their lives are different in ways that the liberal moving into your town is not different from the liberal moving into LA, for example. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And you said, well, wait a minute, like that's like geographical local differences have been leveled out in favor of more homogenization across the geographical divides mm -hmm. in favor of sort of lifestyle. And by the way, this is just to fill it out. This is obviously it has to be largely the product of you know, the ways our technology now have worked. You know, I moved, you know, from New from Northern Jersey and New York City, right, to uh, to Nashville, Tennessee in 2001. So I've been here quite a while, uh, 20 years. Um, seen all kinds of changes to Nashville that are similar to the ones you're describing in your town. Um, it is now a, you know, a, a wildly expensive city. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uh, wildly expensive uh, uh, when, I, when my wife and I both moved here. But, um, you know, when I moved 20 years ago in Nashville, couldn't have Ethiopian food. Mm -hmm. I can right now, right now, I can call up Ethiopian, I can get Ethiopian food here in 15 minutes, right? Yeah. I could go, I, you know, there are three Ethiopian restaurants in Nashville now, right? Yeah. Well, just think about that. And so, again, in one, in one point, you want to say, well, that's interesting, right? That's cool. You know, that's wh what's wrong with that? I'm not sure that there's anything wrong with it, mm -hmm. but it does suggest that as our technological capacities have expanded, as our communities have become economically more similar or more mm -hmm. homo uh, or, uh, homogeneous, mm -hmm. um, those of us who have a certain level of economic advantage have been able to create the civic life, the world around us according to our choices our preferences enough people here you're, you're you know you're a pretty affluent guy you know you like you like ethnic food well some restaurants are going to open mm -hmm. and now you don't have to go without that stuff right you like foreign films oh there's the foreign film theater in nashville too you can see foreign films all day well when before the pandemic you can see foreign films all day long now to a guy like me and my wife like i'm an academic you know we love this kind of thing and, yeah. you know, we think it's great. Like the, the city is kind of reflecting our lifestyle and the, the ways that we like to spend our time. And in a way, great. Yeah. But you want to say there's a cost to all that latitude we have now. All of that choice, all of that license we have to not go to, to create conditions where we don't have to go without, where we don't have to change or rearrange our preferences because, you know, I don't have to, you know, I don't, I don't have to go without foreign films and Ethiopian food. I can, I can go get Ethiopian food and then go see the movie, right? There's a cost to that. And it is in terms of this broad scale kind of homogenization of my neighborhood. 
(laughs) of my neighbors. And that means that, you know, the people who live in my building, they're all liberal. I I know they're all liberal. I live across the street from a university. You can see their maps. (laughs) Yeah, I can see their (laughs) maps. I know that they, you know, I I can, there is no pickup truck in the parking lot of my building. Yeah. It's a pretty good sign that there's not a conservative. So, you know, I live across the street as a university and a Starbucks. I don't know where the closest Dunkin' Donuts is, right? Yeah. So, um, that's just to say that, you know, th- there are advantages and disadvantages to this kind of stuff. We like to make the world, you know, we like to sort of, you know, what's attractive to a, to a, a location to us is that, oh, look, there are sidewalks. I live, you know, five minutes walk from the main park in Nashville, Centennial Park. My wife and I like parks. That's highly a liberal preference. Yeah. And what does that mean? My neighbors are going to be kind of like me. My interactions, unplanned interactions with others are going to affirm my social identity, make me feel good about who I am, going to sort of stoke my liberal commitments. Uh, And then before you know it, I'm an easy mark for the micro-targeting and for the, you know, uh, for the Rachel Maddow show to come on and tell me, you know, the Republicans are out to destroy the country. Yeah. And so are we in a way, and tell me if I'm totally oversimplifying it, but are we just victims of some massive branding exercise gone awry that happens to have income inequality baked into it? Maybe. Again, I don't know if it's gone awry. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess not. You know, my buying patterns are pretty reliable. Um, I have, I have one, um, one final question for you. And because we've, I think we've, we've talked a lot about how politics has consumed identity. Um, And, and how, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around this now. I'm, I'm thinking about the difference between Whole Foods and Star Market and just realizing the way we inhabit these sort of habit trails uh, uh, that, that cater to specific lifestyles. So I guess the, the question I have for you is, I think most people, even the most hardened partisans, agree that the polarity is a problem and agree that the fact that the, 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 that American democracy, which is supposed to function on compromise to an extent, does not have that compromise needed. Um, so if I'm on the left or I'm on the right, and you can probably tell, tell me who my listeners are by virtue of how I'm broadcasting this, but that notwithstanding, for, for those on the left or those on the right who want to start to reduce this, like, how do they do it? Like, does the liberal guy go and eat at a Cracker Barrel for, like, a couple months? Or, or like, what, what do you do? So, look, this is the, I don't know, it used to be $65,000 question. Now it's yeah. like probably $6 trillion question, given the way inflation works. You know, yeah. whatever the, the appropriately astronomical number is, or sum is, point. it's, you know, uh, it's, it's the big problem. So here's yeah. the thing. Um. I don't think more politics can fix this. Mm -hmm. I think that the only way really out of, I mean, by the way, you know, 
trying to get along with the other side, trying to hear them, putting a little effort into trying to not see them as, you know, criminals and demons and all the rest. All that's good. And I I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't advise against that. Yeah. Going to the Cracker Barrel kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, that's all fine. It's just not going to be sufficient. The root of the problem is the saturation of the political into every aspect of our lives. We need to find a way to reclaim segments of our lives or activities that are cooperative, um, that involve other people, where we're not suppressing our politics or shelving our political differences. We need to find things to do together in which politics is just irrelevant, is beside the point. That's not the reach across the aisle, join a, a, a bipartisan softball league, uh, learn to love your enemies prescription. I mean, do all those things too. You know, that's all yeah. good. All of those proposals keep politics at the center of the endeavor. So if you're going to Cracker Barrel because you want to see how these conservative people eat, you know, that still puts politics at the center. I'm not saying don't do it, I'm saying it can't be sufficient. The thing that we need to do is reclaim part of our lives where you and I are engaged in something and I just don't know what your politics are like, not because we've, you know, entered into an unspoken code to not talk about politics, but just because the thing that we're doing isn't about politics. The fact that your listeners, having heard me say that, are now scratching their heads and saying, what is this philosopher talking about? That's the symptom of the problem, that we can't even imagine that kind of attitude is an indication of how deeply submersed we are in partisan identity. We can't even imagine what it would be like to interact with another person in some cooperative way where... I just don't know what your politics are like because the thing that we're doing is not an expression of our politics. That we can't think those thoughts is um, is the real problem. It's the if we could get if we can figure out how to undo that polarization won't be as toxic as it is. It'll be constrained. Our partisan divides will be contained. Everything will fall back into place, and we'll have a healthy arguing, you know, disagreeable democracy, but it'll be healthy democracy, not toxic. Yeah. Well, you've given us a lot to think about here. And I'm literally scratching my head trying trying to fit. The only unifying thing I think in American culture is probably pizza. And that's the fact that everyone's sort of ambivalent to it. So, um, <laughs> well, Bob, thank you very much for Thanks. coming on. Um, we could thank have spent- you for having me. I, I could have spent way more time on this. I should have blocked off two hours. So we're going to have to do this again. <laughs> and, um, and for those interested too, in reading more, where are some places they could find your work? What are some other ways they can dig into this subject? Uh, so, you know, I have a, um, a, my most recent book is called Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. Um, uh, it's about to come out in paperback. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, you can find me on Twitter, Ampersand Robert Talese, R O B E R T T A L I S S E. Um, and, you know, I usually post things, mostly jokes, but I usually post okay. things about my work when things come out. 
Um, I'm also, uh, you know, you can find me at the Vanderbilt philosophy department, but I also, you know, online posts things about, uh, uh, where my work comes out. Um, but yeah, the most recent book about this stuff is the overdoing democracy book. Mm -hmm. And there's a forthcoming book. That's a kind of follow-up that's called, um, that'll be out in the fall, uh, with Oxford university press called sustaining democracy, what we owe to the other side. Cool. Well, folks, that's your action item. I will have links to the book and uh, Bob's Twitter account on in the show notes on YDHTY.com. Check it out. And thanks again, Bob. Thank you so much. I'll have details on where you can find more of Bob's work in the show notes, along with a great TED Talk he did on how to get through the holidays with relatives of varying political stripes. You can find in the show notes on YDHTY.com. That's Y as in you, D as in don't, H as in have, and so on.com. So be sure to check it out. Also, if you like this episode and know someone else who would, remember sharing is caring and be sure to share it. And if you haven't subscribed already, hop on board this crazy train, my friend. There's always room for one more. Now, the subject of branding and politics isn't something new to YDHTY. And if you're interested in a follow-up episode, you can check out my uh, episode with Chara Torres Spellacy from September 3rd on her book, Political Brands. We touch on a lot of the same themes I talked about with Bob and from both our conversations. It seems that our personal data and the algorithms that use them know us better than we do. And if we're not careful, they could bring us further and further apart as a society. And there's no one federal law regulating the use of personal data in the United States. However, the EU has led the way with an initiative called GDPR. I don't remember what it stands for, but that's what it's called. And it's a law designed to give individuals the ultimate authority in how their data gets used. And given these conversations, we might have to talk about this in a future episode. Stay tuned. As always, theme music, courtesy of Norway's Quellertak, the only band in the credits protected by GDPR. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the Rear Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced with painstaking detail in the state of North Carolina, United States of America, by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, signing off.